when you ask what is it going to take to to change the neoliberal model this is not i think the response should not be anti-capitalist i think the response should be you know to should ask do we want to have unfettered capitalism and have the market decide every aspect of our lives should the market decide whether my grandmother gets intubated or not or should there be some other mechanism to do that Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Salman Keshavji, Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He directs their Global Health Delivery Program and is a physician at Brighamson Health Hospital. He has also extensively been affiliated partners in health and advanced access delivery, which has been delivering care in poor countries for more than 30 years. Salman, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Sahil. I'm great to. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I want to start by talking about the coronavirus. What do you make of everything going on? Well, you know, it's a it's a really interesting thing. We've we've known for a long time that there's the possibility of of viruses affecting us uh, uh, in bad ways. Of course, we had H1N1, we had SARS, we have had MERS. You know, so we've had a number of of viral scares. I think what coronavirus really shows us is that even in some of the more prepared places, places where you think have really good health systems, really good capacity, that we actually don't. We don't have the capacity to treat people and screen people in the communities where they live and work. And so, you know, what we've seen is this incredible, incredible onslaught on even some of the most prepared health systems because we're really hospital based. You know, so I'm looking at this as somebody that is has been working in community healthcare delivery for a number of years, and you know, hospitals are critical. You you know, when you need to intubate somebody and they need to be on a on a life support machine, of course you need it. But you know, you you realize now that we can't we can't screen well in the communities where people live and work, and it's terrible for coronavirus, but. Looking down the road, when you look at things like diabetes, you know, 700 million people are going to have diabetes. You realize, gee, we can't even do it for that also. And so it's it's kind of laid bare the weaknesses in our health system and the models that we've been using. So it's a scary bug. It, um, you know, it, 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 it really requires to rethink a lot of the ways we've been doing things in our society. How do you think the spread of this disease affects the culture of global communities? especially how we might change the way we operate in the future. Well, the you know the idea that you have to the social isolation part, the idea that you have to isolate from each other um, and interact interact electronically is interesting, right? So th- there are negative things and there may be some positive things. So let me let me start with the negative because I think the negative are are obvious. Um, you know, when you start to look at the fact that our economy requires people to interact with each other, you know, the, the let's say people right. working at a restaurant, uh, you know, you need people to come to the restaurant, uh, people selling, uh, you know, hot dogs at a, at a baseball game, you need people to come to a baseball game, right? So you, you start to realize that there's a lot of people in our economy that have jobs that are very vulnerable. And, you know, a survey came out this week that looked at working class Americans, and basically, you know, 60% said that they couldn't survive for more than a month under isolation. Uh, because they couldn't pay their bills and other things. And 20% said that they couldn't even survive for a week. Now, the United States doesn't have a deep safety net like some other countries. But, you know, you you realize the vulnerability of people here in the United States and the vulnerability of obviously many, many people worldwide. So, you know, I think that in some ways that's changed the way that we have to look at, you know, uh, how we have these societies living on the economic margin over-leveraged, living on the margin in jobs that are are very vulnerable to this kind of thing. So that's, I think that's one piece that we we get out of this. And and, and of course, and, and with it, I think we're going to see a, a major uptick in uh, issues around mental health, around people having major problems with other diseases. Our health facilities are completely um, uh focused on coronavirus so that means if you you know you're not people are not getting mammograms people are not getting colonoscopies people are not getting allergy shots people are not getting scanned for other things and so 
you know, as a result, what's going to happen is that you're going to see an uptick of of uh, negative outcomes from a lot of other things that that's are supposed to happen. And we're also going to see, uh, you know, in just as far as the health system, we realize here now in the United States that our health system relies on seeing patients and billing, you know, Medicare and et cetera for it, so that they can that so that hospitals can stay viable. And we're seeing um, that that without that, they've you know some hospitals are putting doctors on furlough. If you can imagine, like even at this point, wow, yeah. And so you know we're we're it's laying bare a lot of things about our health system and how precarious certain elements of our society are. And I think that that th- those are the negative parts. That's that that's that's the worrisome, the social isolation, the effects on the health system, the effects on mental health. The effects on the economy, and I and by economy, it's of course the larger economy, but I'm talking about the household economy and people surviving, and average American families surviving when we're living on an at the overleveraged margin. So that's that's one piece. Hmm. The positive side that you see out of it is, you know, pollution levels have dropped markedly, and you know, people thought it unimaginable that that you could shut down some of these industries or you could change the way some of these industries worked. And maybe this opens the door to think about that. We we realize now that a number of people had tasks that they could do reasonably well from home. And so you start to realize, well, maybe you can have flexible work models where people work from home more and come into work one or two days a week for group meetings and other things. And you know wh- why do that? Well, it it changes the dynamics around pollution, around c- commuting, uh, you know, around people's quality of life, etc. So there may be elements of 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 the having to be at home and and working from your home space and yet interacting with other people that could lead to positive ways of of doing things. So I think it's you know it's not all negative, but it has laid bare. Um, some of the the things that we've been doing that we can change. Speaking of things we can change, another hot topic that's being heavily discussed right now is Medicare for all. I'm curious about what do you think an ideal plan would be? Is Medicare for all really the answer? And how do we prevent it from hurting the thousands of doctors flooded already in debt? So you're bringing up a, a, a good uh, question in the sense that, you know, let's just erase the debt for a second. You, you know, so there's the Medicare for all piece. And then there's the, can you do that in isolation of other things question? Right. And you've tied the two together in your questions. So I'm going to, I'm going to parse them apart. So sure. is, is Medicare for all a good thing? Um, you know, again, we're, I look at my insurance. I have a very good in, insurance. And um, if I go to the emergency department and I do not get admitted, to, as a patient into the hospital, I have to pay a hundred and fifty dollar copay. And I was telling a friend of mine who's got you know one of the uh, uh, other plans that you can buy through uh, you know through the uh, um, uh, you know through the federal government type system. And she was telling me, "Oh, you only pay one fifty. Mine is seven hundred, hmm. <laughs> right?" And and so you're like, I was like, "What?" You mean if you go to the eMERGE and you don't get admitted, you have to pay $700? And when you start to look at that, you're like, who would go? Like if you had coronavirus or you were having a heart attack, like you'd say, oh, I've got indigestion or, oh, gee, I've probably got a cold, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to go and get checked. And so you you realize that there's there's so much in our system that, that prevents people from getting care. Now, we happen to be in an outbreak, so it's easy to talk about an outbreak. But most Americans have issues with diabetes and heart attacks and a bunch of other things that you may not need to go to the eMERGE. You may just need to go to an urgent care system. Well, do people have an incentive to make an urgent care if you make more money by going to the eMERGE? A, the hospitals. B, you know, the, the insurance companies, of course, have an interest in, in, in building urgent cares, but they don't do care delivery. And the people who do 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 care delivery want to maximize what they're able to take in from insurance so that they can cover their costs. And so, you know, when you look at systems in other countries where there are single payers that are paying for the hospital, that are paying for the clinic, that are paying for the urgent care clinic, they, they appear to be able to distribute those resources 
better so as to optimize them. So, you know, if you're looking at it, like could could a different system help us optimize how we're distributing health insurers, health resources? The answer to that is yes. Okay. Then the second piece is if you get care, let's say I have a, uh, you know, I have a heart attack and I go to the hospital and I get a stent. I have to take medicines after that stent. Or let's say I go to the doctor and they diagnose me with diabetes. I need to take medicines after that. And the way we've, you know, the way we've set up our systems is that even if you have insurance, a lot of insurances don't cover the medicines. So, and and even countries like Canada, the insurance system doesn't cover the medicines. And so then now you have the situation that, oh, okay, so the doctor writes a prescription and the person still can't access it for various barriers, you know, through, because of cost or maybe other things. So that's one piece of it that, you know, you, you, you're not, you, you, we're having problems distributing the care because we don't have the single payer system that can control the different parts simultaneously. We also are having the problem that when people receive the care, if they can receive the care, there's certain parts that still uh, are, are big barriers to people being able to, to, to fulfill what is required to get better in many cases. Now, if you were to agree with me and say, wow, okay, um, let's do that. Well, you, you've brought up the point of, well, doctors have huge loans. Well, they don't in other countries where medical school doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So right. then you start to say, oh, okay, well, either we figure out how to make the prices lower or we cover the costs for some of these things. And it could be a teacher. We're talking about doctors in the health system. We could be, be talking about teaching in the education system, right? Uh, right. It, it could be any any one of these things. Uh, we, we could be talking. I, I have a friend who had to pay a lot to go to, uh, to to become a mechanic. So it could be, you know, from mechanic training to, to running a car shop. So th this is the same story. How do we make it so that it's viable for the person that that has gone through the training to participate in in something in a way that they are able to, to to survive doing it? So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece that you you know you haven't yet mentioned is the well, okay, you want to have drugs included because you know it's important because that's how medicine me mediates its treatment is through drugs for the most part, Western biomedicine. Um, well, then that means we need to change the, our pricing models for the way that, that, that pharmaceutical companies are pricing things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it becomes a, a package. You cannot just change one part. And, and, and you know, Sahil, we've been having this debate publicly because right. of the primaries, right? You know, healthcare for all or not? And does it, include, does it include pills or doesn't it? Do we completely reform it top down and change student loans or not? And the reason all of these are tied is just for the question you asked. They're all part of this puzzle. You can't fix one thing without really trying to address the other parts. Do you think discussions will be shifting because of what's happening with the current coronavirus epidemic? Do you think it's already shifting? Well, I think people are seeing that if you want to stop an epidemic, you need to provide free health care, right? I mean, there's been a big debate, and uh, and, and I think some sense of resolution around the testing part. You know, can you go and get tested and will it be free? And again, I still, I, I still don't know the answer. Could I go to my eMERGE and get tested for free without paying the copay? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But, but there's been at least a discussion that the testing for this has to be free if you want people who think that they may be sick or know that somebody else is sick to be able to come in and get tested. But I guess that begs the question of, you know, what 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 do you consider an epidemic to be, right? Uh, 700 million people in the world will have diabetes by 2040. Okay, wow. 700 million people. If they don't get care, they'll go blind. They will have early heart disease. They will have limb amputations. They will have kidney failure, and which you know, which 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 ultimately leads to death. Um, you know, and a number and number of other things that that go hand in hand with diabetes. Testing is not free for those people in most of the world, and not in the United States, right? Like you would mm -hmm. say, well, gee, it's only at half of the 700 million now in the world. It's around 300 or 350 million. You know, that sounds like a crazy epidemic. Should we make that testing for that free? And so, you know, again, coronavirus opens the door to like, okay, like we have this virus that kills you now, 
and we have a bunch of other things that kill you later. And maybe we should really think about testing for all of them so that nobody has to die without achieving their full potential or having a long, healthy life or being able to contribute to society, you know, in, in, a, in a positive way while they're healthy. Maybe we need to do something different across the board. So to me, that it opens that that door. I don't know. I don't know if it opens it for everybody. I want to talk about more of the practical, sociological side of this epidemic, almost in the sense that how do you see it playing out? <laughs> well, I, I I think we will be we 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 will be talking about it because it's just had such a profound effect. Like you look at, you know, I talked to you earlier about many people getting, uh, you know, big, potentially potentially losing their livelihood. Um, a significant number of Americans in the last two weeks have, uh, you know, have gone on to unemployment and and have lost their jobs. Mm. And, you know, I think that the vulnerability of the population, anytime you have vulnerability of population, it really leads to different types of political instability. And so, you know, that political instability is out there. I think people are, are feeling it. Uh, and so I think we'll be we'll be talking about that aspect for for a while. Um, you know, it, it's hard to parse out. The, obviously, like like the flu of 1918, um, if if we see a lot of people die from this, you know, five years from now, we're going to still be talking about it. If we don't see a lot of people die from this, but we do see a lot of people dying from the economic fallout, we will also be talking about it, right? And of course, potentially, we have the we have the potential for both to be happening. And, and we'll certainly be talking about that. I think we'll be talking about how our privatized health system left rural hospitals and other places really, really vulnerable to bankruptcy because they relied so much on Medicare, Medicaid, and weren't seen as a social good. We're not seen as a utility. We're not seen as something that needed to be there because they're important just for the functioning of society. So we're going to see hospitals having to be bailed out and you know thinking about that. We're going to be talking about the fact that that certain vaccines and 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 things probably were not made because they weren't seen as 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 viable for the market at that point, right? You make mm -hmm. certain things because you're planning. Uh, you, if you're thinking in the long term, you may invest in certain things not because they make money, but but because they protect you later. That's mm -hmm. not the way a lot of our companies. That, that make uh, pharmaceutical products work. They make things because they're blockbusters and can make money now, right? And so, you know, I think we'll be talking about uh, uh, the role of, um, uh, of, of the way we're, we're, we're viewing the health system through a private lens and how, you know, really the, the, the role of the state in really thinking in the long term for people. So I think there's going to be a lot of discussion. I don't know which way it's going to go. It's going to be different in different countries. This country in the United States, there's a definitely a push to really um, thinking more uh, in terms of of everything does not have to be done by the state and should not be done by the state because of ideas around liberty and freedom. I think in other places where the state plays a more centralized role, there there may be a push to say, look, you know, the state has to have its hand in vaccine development and a number of other things because, you know, we can't risk this happening again. Uh, and, you know, there, I think that there's merit to both sets of arguments and we'll, we'll have to find a balance. So I think that's, you know, the debates will be medical, the debates mm -hmm. will be political, the debates will be, you know, the effect on the social world. Churches closed, mosques closed, synagogues closed, you know, mandirs closed, a lot of temples closed, a lot of places, you know, where people meet were able to shut down. What does this mean about congregation? Um, you know, are, is it possible to do virtual congregation in the in in the future? What does this mean about air travel? You know, like you know, we did people presumably will be doing a lot of business um, by 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 Zoom and 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 Skype and other methods. Um, you know, what does it mean about that? So I think there'll be there's going to be a lot of discussion in the years to come that this rupture in the way we did things, this rupture in our unchangeable world these things were such fixed ways of operating we're going to be discussing those ruptures for a while and saying well were they really that fixed you know like is this the right way were we doing the right thing and i think there'll be there'll be discussions in both ways you know go either go back to it or, or try and change things 
I think one critical discussion perhaps that needs to be, I think, fleshed out more is I think people perhaps are figuring out from an anthropological and social point is what I'm talking about here is that, you know, my priorities have been wrong, right? What What we believe is permanent are really constructs, whether it be, you know, nation state, capitalism, because we work in this globalized way and these borders and these constructs we've created in reality don't don't mean much in some sense. I think, what are your thoughts there? Oh, you know, this this is a great, great question. And it's um, it, 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 it applies to coronavirus, but it also applies to thinking about the environment. And, you know, I, I lived... Um, through the collapse of the the Soviet Union, obviously not inside but outside watching it, and you know I was a, uh, you know I was a, an, an adult by the time it started collapsing, and so I, I you know I, I we, your doctoral thought, research was not it? But yeah, my doctoral research was on that, and and you know just think about it. You grow up with this entity that you think is permanent. There's the Soviet Union, and there's the West, and there's you know these things that are permanent. There are countries and they have borders and there's an iron curtain and there's this and that. And these are permanent fixtures. And then overnight, you know, literally almost overnight in some cases, but in the span of a few months, it disintegrates and disappears. And I spent a lot of time working in that that post-Soviet space. um, And it was amazing. People, you know, people obviously said things like, Oh my God, like we thought these national borders, like what? We have these new borders between us and this other place that we used to consider our brothers. We thought we were the same country like five minutes ago. And we we thought, what? Our bank accounts disappeared or what? <laughs> like, you know, we, we don't make medicines anymore. Like, you know, like all these things that they, they that, that seemed so permanent and real, disintegrated, dissolved. And you know, you you look at that and you say, "Wow, okay, so we this has happened. This has happened in our, in our lifetimes in the 20th century. It happened, and you know, then you start to look at things differently. When you look at the environment movement, some you know, I I have I went to a talk recently where people said something that just blew me away. They said, "Well, you know, um, India has a lot of uh, you know when we're looking at the, at climate change and we're looking at carbon footprint at this public." talk i was at people said well you know india's got this huge climate footprint and and so does uh, china. china yeah you know and and you know these guys need to maybe they need to look back at controlling their population and i said and and then you know somebody else was talking at the time about how mongolian farmers are running out of grassland and how they uh you know how they got to you know when they reach the border with russia they can't cross and, and the green grass is across the border and you start mm-hmm. to look at this and say so what is India? What is China? What is Russia? What is Mongolia? Right? And you know, when you look at say Canada, the United States and Australia, they are the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases per ton per person, right? Ton per person. Right. And you say, wow, well, you know, and again, I'm not saying this should be done, but I'm saying this is how it could be. Well, Australia could fit 300 million Indians and 300 million Chinese, and it wouldn't have a problem, would it? Right. Mm. And Mongolians could really cross and, 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 and have uh, grass on the other side of, of what is an imaginary line, right? Mm-hmm. And so you start to say, wow, so we've constructed the world in a certain way. We've created these borders and these things. And then what that does is it naturalizes a situation in a way that we say, oh, yeah, India is really, really in a tough situation. It's got so many people within its borders. But those borders, you know, are, are themselves constructs, right? So right. if all the Indians were to move to Europe, which is more or less empty, we wouldn't have that population pressure in India. That can't happen in the world as we know it, but it yeah. is. But these are constructs that we've made that are social constructs in the post-colonial period. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I'm not suggesting that we upend that, but I'm suggesting that we think about that, that we think about how you, you know, that 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 some of these these categories that we've created, the Indian, the whatever, that we start to rethink some of these things because that that makes our, our world a lot more complicated. Canada could fit a lot of people. Australia could fit a lot of people. A lot of places could fit a lot of people if you're worried about population pressure. Or you say, you know what, 
I think we should move to solar and the whole world should, you know, invest in more solar, more wind, more whatever, and take that pressure off of these places that are producing a lot of carbon, even though not high per capita, but because they, you know, they have a lot of population. So there's different ways to skin this, but I think we have to analyze the constructs that we've made that that actually help uh, naturalize some of these problems. I want to shift our conversation to more about global health and your work with tuberculosis. You often say that we've known how to treat the disease for 60 years, and yet 1.5 million people die from it. You also mentioned that 4,000 people are dying from it every day. Why still still an issue? Well, this is this is a great question, and it and again you tie this you know to the discussion that we've had uh, so far, and that is that you you've got. Um, a disease that's had a cure since 1948. And and, and the history of TB is really interesting because it, it actually fits very well with our coronavirus discussion. You know, when, you know, TB used to kill a quarter, a quarter of all the people in, in North America and Europe and probably elsewhere, but where, where it was measured, a quarter of people in the 19th century. Okay, so this is like a, a major plague on mankind. In fact, it's estimated by some that between 1800 and and 2000 tb killed about a billion people over time right so it's it's really quite incredible and a lot of early medicine in the early 20th century was about how do you stop tb and you know when when the x-ray was created in 1895 it was just a game changer because you could see x-ray changes for people who had tb in their lungs and most tb about 85 or 90 percent is in people's lungs and so you know, it was a game changer and Western countries started rolling out portable x-rays, community screening, screening neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city to find people with TB and separate them. They would send them to sanatoriums in those days, right? And so you you have this this amazing model where they they literally take healthcare and diagnostics to the communities where patients live and work. People like the Japanese in the 1930s started integrating it with their public health care system. And so, you know, you have this very, very uh, incredible community-based diagnosis. And then the first TB drug is is developed in the late 1940s, streptomycin, and a number of other drugs come out very soon thereafter, and the disease becomes curable if you actually give people treatment. And they found out that you didn't have to treat people in hospitals. Studies from India in the 1950s showed that you could treat people at home. And then... Just, you know, the United States Public Health Service did the studies in Alaska where they showed that, you know, if you uh, give people preventive therapy, they don't even get sick. So people who are exposed who get preventive therapy don't get sick. So the combination of searching properly, giving treatment and preventing with preventive therapy and infection control and, and then, of course, tied to this with social supports for people while they were getting treatment you could get rid of the disease. And that's how the United States and Europe and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and a lot of other U- rich countries and continents got rid of it, right? And, and, you, you, um, and, and so, so there's this cure. And so the question you're asking is, wow, uh, these guys got rid of it. The rates went down so low. Why is it so high everywhere else? Well, from the very beginning, from the 1950s, when the first drugs were available, the newly minted World Health Organization recommended. So, you know, we knew in Western countries that you had to use more than one drug or else, or else you develop drug resistance. The TB bacteria grows so slowly and it's very prone to developing drug resistance. And so you had to use two or three drugs to cure a patient. And um, the WHO in the 1950s, for, for about a decade, recommended a single drug for poor countries, because that's all they could afford. In fact, the the historian Christian McMillan at University of Virginia has written a book about this. And as you read it, it's just a shocking read. He goes through the minutes of these meetings and, you know, how the doctors on the ground in places like Kenya, the, the British doctors on the ground in places like Kenya, refused to do that because they thought it was bad biomedicine. And, you know, you you have this, um, this kind of in, incredible... Uh, divergence in therapy even from the very beginning rich countries are getting a therapy that cures you and poor countries are getting a therapy that cures you sometimes because that's all that you can afford and of course if you start to dissect this you say well why why is that all they could afford right and the reason is was because they had just come out of a few hundred years of colonialism 
and they didn't have cash in their treasuries. So countries were being relegated to care based of based on the amount of money that was in their national treasury. That was the triage thing, right? And and when when preventive therapy was invented in the late 1950s and became the norm in the United States in 1962, the scientists that did it, George Comstock, presented it to the WHO Expert Committee in 1964, and they said, you know what? This is too complicated for poor countries. It'll confuse them. And the same thing in 1974. And the same thing in 1982. And the same thing when they came out with a global strategy against TB in 1993. And so, so you, you start to look at this and you're like, what? And, and you know, remember I told you the x-ray was the big game changer? Well, mm -hmm. Western countries were using x-rays. When the WHO came out with their strategy for poor countries, they went back to a uh, Using micros looking at TB sputum under microscopic slides, which was very avant-garde when it was created by Robert Koch in 1882, um, but it, it it only found half the cases. It's, it's got a 50% sensitivity. So that's what they recommended for poor countries. So poor countries got regulated, sorry, got relegated to a lower standard of care across the board, and you know when you ask yourselves. You ask, you know, we ask ourselves why. It's complicated. It's linked to, uh, I think, the post-colonial moment. It's linked to race. It's linked to who the colonies were. They were workers. They were brown people. They were black people. They were the colonial other, right? And then that dovetails so well with the neoliberal arguments that say, well, health has to be affordable. What's the what is affordable? Well, affordable to the people buying it. So that means, again, it gets distributed based on how much money you have and not on the hierarchy of need. So basically, countries got relegated to their place in the global economy rather than their place in the hierarchy of need. And so what you do is you see that TB, treatable for the last 60 years, kills 4,000 people a day, pretty well, like 99.9% .9 in poor countries. That's that's crazy. It, it is crazy. It's crazy, and the, the the crazy part of it, Sahil, is that it's fixable. It's right. actually fixable, you know. And you look at it, and you're like, really? And 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 again, not to undermine the coronavirus scare because it it is scary stuff, but four thousand people a day for TB, and. And you could say, well, Salman, why are you fixated on TB? Why aren't you talking about the 2 million kids that die from diarrhea every year? Yeah, we can fix that with sewage. There's lots of things we can fix that we don't. And a lot of it is driven by who is it that deserves the fixing. And really, poor countries and poor places and poor people in rich places have really not been the beneficiaries of the incredible growth that we've seen global in the global economy, right? And, and it's because of a lot of factors, race being one of them, class being one of them. And if we can distill neoliberal economics to this, methods of distribution being another one of them. There it is, right? I think, like you say, neoliberalism, as you've mentioned in your, in your book on, right, how neoliberalism infiltrated global health. How, how do we get past this? You, you, neoliberalism, of course, has been the defining paradigm of global health, I would say, since the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, is there a solution? Well, <laughs> the, the solution, the, there is a solution. So, you know, if I may, is this okay if I just dissect neoliberalism a question and, uh, for a second and just dissect your question a bit? Absolutely, sure. So, you know, what is neoliberalism? And of course, that that in itself is a one or two hour topic. But let's let's just distill it down to this, that the neoliberalism that we saw, uh, you know, that, that, we, that we saw arise from... Uh, the from Austrian thinkers and other thinkers in the in the 1930s really was uh, a response to a couple of things. One is it was a response to um, to to very you know the development of what they saw as complex bureaucracies that would would stifle liberty. Um, they it was a response to what they saw as uh, the anti anti liberal bent of like th things like Keynesian economics that were saying that the government had to get more involved in ways that that could help society at large and not really leave everything, leave all distribution to the market. Um, it was also a response to the rise of Bolshevism, the rise of Nazism. And, you know, both of those were 
were you know viewed as um, uh, uh, you know the the socialization of the state and the and again the the, the creation of very large complex bureaucracies etc cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, um, Ludwig von Mises work uh, you know the, one of his great works on uh, on laying out the power of the consumer in neoliberalism is called bureaucracy. Mm. That's what the book is called. And it, you know, so you 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 realize that there was this very deep preoccupation with with ideas of of bureaucracy, and when you so the economic so it's it's a political project. It's a political project. It's about creating a world uh, where you you through through the atomization of certain forms of power, you actually in some ways disempower the state. It makes it, you make it very difficult to have a centralized totalitarian state. Right? And so that's that. It's a political project, and the one of the the mechanisms through which you, you know through which neoliberalism achieved its goals was through neoliberal economics, which basically said, well, the state shouldn't be involved in any of these things in society. They, the, the the things that can be done by the private sector should be done by the private sector, and the state should just regulate that the market can work well and the market can distribute social goods. And that idea really came to you know came, you know rose after world war 2 and and institutions were created that 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 really uh, took those ideas to the next level like the world bank the international monetary fund the general agreement on trade and tariffs which eventually became you know gave way to the world trade organization so you know we created these superstructural things that that kind of um, uh, these entities that 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 superseded the nation state and could really uh, lay a foundation for uh, a neoliberal way of thinking. Okay, and so when you ask the question, uh, how do you change that? Right. How do you change that? We need to change the way we think about what it means to be a society and the role of the state and the role of the market within all of that. You can be a society with a market. Mm-hmm. Or you can be a market society where everything is mediated through the market, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the older thinkings of the social contract uh, were that people come together so that they can share risk and thereby protect each other. And, you know, you start to look at in the post-World War II period, we actually have a different phenomenon than neoliberalism that also happened, which is the creation of what people uh, uh, derisively referred to as the welfare state in Europe, but let me let me change the that orientation of thinking. Instead of viewing it deliver, d- derisively, what if we were to say, "Wow, one of the great inventions of the 20th century was that some countries came together and thought, how can we better pool risk so to protect each other?" And then they define protecting each other as saying, "Well, why don't we help people who are old? Why don't we figure out how to help people who are sick?" Why don't we figure out how to help people who may have trouble getting employment for small periods, et cetera, right? And mm-hmm. they actually came up with better ways of doing pooled risk schemes, right? And they they and and of course they there was a recognition in some of these countries that the market thinks in the short term. And that, you know, you actually need to, you know, after after the Great Depression, of course, people realize the market thinks in the short term. And you do need some entity like the state that can think in the longer term. And you see this in the 1960s, even in the United States. You see a president like Lyndon Johnson put in so many laws that were addressing, you know, he, he created the war on poverty in America, right? And President Johnson... Uh, put in laws like that that supported uh, the Head Start program. Uh, you know, of course, we, we, he's most famous for things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and things like that. But really, trying to address, you know, how do you get to the right uh, uh, educational basis for to make your society grow? How do you get to the right uh, uh, economic basis to make your society grow, etc.? So the idea of of you know that the state should be involved is also something that emerges in the 20th century but what we see happen in the latter part you know after margaret thatcher becomes the prime minister of uh, of the uk and uh, president uh, reagan in the us you see kind of a gelling of the idea that well you know the welfare state uh, hasn't allowed the type of growth that uh, could 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 create much more wealth and you know you kind of get a push back uh, that uh, and and people say well 
we should leave more to the market. The state should not be involved in a lot of these things because they're considered inefficient. And, and then you get this push more towards the market. We talked earlier about hospitals going bankrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Hospitals go bankrupt because of the market system. They rely on selling goods to survive. What if you were a hospital because you're a hospital, because you need hospitals to run a country, because it's part of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Then you would conceive of hospitals as different, and we would fund them differently, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so right. when you ask what is it going to cha- take to to change the neoliberal model, this is not – I think the response should not be anti-capitalist. I think the response should be – you know, to should ask, do we want to have unfettered capitalism and have the market decide every aspect of our lives? Should the market decide whether my grandmother gets intubated or not? Or should there be some other mechanism to do that? Should the market decide whether somebody gets TB treatment or not? Or should there be another mechanism to do that? And I think that that would allow us to parse out where markets are good like they may be good in distributing cell phones and they may not be good in distributing certain goods like healthcare or or power supply you know just because energy is is important for the running of our country or they may not be good for de- for determining our defense needs you know there 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 are areas where they may not be the ideal distributive mechanism and so i i i hope that that's where the discussion moves because you know, we have a lot of workers who are living on the margin right now, and you have to ask yourself why in the richest country on earth that would be the case. One of the phenomenon we're seeing playing out in today's world is something called post-fact or post-truth. Uh, we, we almost live in a post-fact or post-truth society. So to quote the Aga Khan, he says, some people say is that we live in a post-fact society. Yes, a post-fact society. It's not just that everyone feels entitled to his or her own opinion. That's a good thing. But the problem comes when people feel they're entitled to their own facts. What is true too often can then depend not only on what actually happened, on whose side you are. Our search for the truth can become less important than our allegiance to a cause. Do you see this playing out in healthcare today and in global health today? Yeah, I mean it plays out all the time because we're we're you know this this is precisely the debate. It's how you use the facts, you know, <laughs> and how you interpret these facts. And um, you know, the, the, this is these this is not about data. This is not about data. And this is what I tried to to bring out in in blind spot. You know, um, it's about dogma. It's about what you. Um, you know what what you you believe to be true and the data supports it so you know when when you look at at, at a health project for example uh, and and I take this example in that book uh, you know if you t- if you look at a project and you say well our goal is to privatize pharmacies so that they're decentralized from the government then that's the statistic that you're interested in right so if somebody tells you oh yeah but when you decentralize the privacy the the pharmacies uh, you know, um, 10,000 people died from their diabetes being untreated. That's mm-hmm. an interesting stat. But if in your report you write, we we decentralized the uh, pharmacies and now the government isn't spending any more money on it and uh, that we've been able to lower taxes, that's a different stat, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the spin that takes place is like, what is the, what are you measuring? And I think you you measure and value what's important to you ideologically. There's lots of nuances here, right? And so I, I do agree with the quote that you read because this becomes a problem. There are some things that are factual. And then as to, you know, w- w- the way you parse it is ideological. But the ideological parsing also has to be rooted in a recognition of what is important to society. So if you don't want people to die from diabetes, then you need to say, well, we probably need to get them care. We probably need to lower the price of insulin. We probably need to do X, Y, and Z, right? And then you start to think, well, what would get us there? And that's where a lot of these ideological things come into play. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's it's a really complicated thing because it's 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 this complex of, you know, your view of the world, your view of the way you want the world to be, and where these facts fit into it. And then that, of course, drives, you know, the solutions 
that present themselves. So, you know, in the case of pharmaceuticals, you could say, well, we want to have, we don't want the state involved in distributing pharmaceuticals. We want to have small pharmacies because we think that that's better. Okay, let's accept that. But will small pharmacies go to faraway communities where they can't make enough money? Probably not. Well, what happens to those communities, right? So you, when you start going down the line, you realize that the choices we make create a whole sense of vulnerabilities. And I think that's the biggest problem with this post-truth thing. We pull the truths that we want and we use it to support our ideological position. And then you kind of just ignore everything else around it. Yeah, it's almost like in, in the case of science, you're using your what you want to define your hypothesis and and then prove your hypothesis. So yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I, you know, and and, and there's a danger in this because, you know, for mundane things, you can say, okay, yeah, you know, this person thinks that, and I think this, and you know, tomato, tomato, it doesn't really matter. But when it comes to very serious uh, societal things, I think it becomes a little bit more more complicated. And finally. I often think we need to think about a vision for the future. And we end up talking about this in general terms, but could you name a specific objective, maybe on from maybe from a global health standpoint, that you see the world can achieve, let's say, in twenty-five years? And what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help us achieve this vision? Well, I think, you know, Sahel, the world has transformed markedly from um the Soviet days. Well, certainly from the with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with uh, the rise of uh, China and India and Indonesia and Malaysia and a lot of other countries economically, um, South Africa, you, know, you, you and and the countries of Latin America, you're you're, you're seeing a shift in the way people are are thinking uh, about the world. And so let me just jump back to the idea of, of of TB because you know that's again something that I work on and that it's easy for me to to you know think about. The, you know, I'm, I, I told you that there was a double standard in care, and I told you that it was propagated by, by uh, large organizations, including uh, the United Nations. And so, you know, you say, wow, how can we fix that, right? Or, or, or you look at, at the environment movement, and I just want to mention it only for parallel with, with, with what I'm about to tell you with the TB movement. You know, you start to look at it and you say, well, you know, every country is producing their own carbon and doing this and that. And, you know, is there some way that you can start thinking about this differently? And how do you change it? And I think the environmental movement gave us a key, right? Before you had these big UN meetings and other things, for many years, small communities were saying, we're done with this. We want to recycle, right? It wasn't, these weren't done by federal fiats. These weren't, these weren't uh, laws you know, communities said, oh, we want to recycle paper, then we want to recycle compost, we want to do this. And it started and it built up and eventually it became state regulations uh, in some places. Um, some some local governments and state governments said, oh, well, we, you know, we think that if we had more fuel efficient cars, we'd have less smog. And if we have less smog, we'll have less acid rain. So they started regulating, um, you know, uh, car emissions and saying that, that, that companies had to do better because the technology was already there and you could do better. You had some cities starting in Europe and then moving very rapidly elsewhere saying, you know, we want to have healthy cities. We want to create bike lanes. We want to do a bunch of things, right? And I think as you start to look at these, you say, wow, this this is not just about fixing the environment. It's about it's about people participation. It's about municipal participation. It's about conscientization in a certain way. And in fixing the things that they're talking about, they're also going to fix some other things. They're creating a different type of political participation. And so we've asked ourselves, can we do that with TB, right? Like, it's not like there's the formula on how to do it is not there because it's been done in so many rich countries, right? So what we started doing is a group of us at, at Harvard Medical School, a group called uh, 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 IRD, which is based in Singapore, uh, uh, the, uh, an NGO called Advanced Access and Delivery, the Stop TB Partnership, uh, and Partners in Health. A lot of other people came together and said, look, can we take what we know and create an alliance of people that want to do it? And and actually what we started with is municipalities. We went to municipalities. We went to, to the municipalities in Chennai, uh, in Durban, 
in uh, um, in in Shenzhen in China, uh, in Yogyakarta, in Lima, Peru, and said, "Look, you know, you've got these people that have tuberculosis in your borders, and there's actually a better way to treat it, and you won't spend you, you know you'll spend a little bit more money now, but you'll create a platform." that will capture more sick people and then you'll spend less because you'll have less sick people. And that same platform, screening and testing people in the communities where they live and work, you can actually use for diabetes and a bunch of other diseases. And now these smaller places, you know, uh, um, Vladimir in Russia, uh, 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 Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, these places have said, oh yeah, we want to do this. And so we're seeing a movement of people saying, well, we want to try and do the right standard of care and build a platform for delivering healthcare differently. It's still nascent. It's still nascent, Sahil, but it's yeah. growing. So when I look over the next 25 years, I think if we have more of that, we can actually transform the way we're thinking about healthcare. If we have more of that, we can transform the environment. So I see that that as being one of the instruments with which we can say, you know what? enough of having the market be the distributor, people need to start thinking about what they need and how they're going to do it. And I think that that will change the dynamic. It'll make the market the market, which can work well for the things that we need. Uh, it's not anti-capitalist. It's a way of saying, you know what, capitalism's great. Let's use it where it distributes really well. But let's think about what we need socially first so that we can shape the instruments in our society to help us get to that goal. So this Zero Cities Project, Zero TB Initiative, is one small thing that we're trying to do in the area of one disease, but really thinking bigger and saying, you know, can we make this into something global and go well beyond TB? Salman, this has been really insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com. <laughs>